From KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked, our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, Wyoming's only avalanche center in Jackson is trying to bring together snow observations from community members in less studied snowpacks in the eastern half of the state. Before they go out, they can make decisions on what the snowpack may be like. It'll help guide their terrain choices, hopefully. And shuttle service to the Jackson Hole Airport has finally returned. But ridership needs to improve if locals want to keep it going. I think then that the community will need to reevaluate whether or not there is really a demand for public transit service between town and the airport. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Please help us. That's just one message from new survey results of over 900 community members about Jackson's housing issues, where locals shared they're being forced to move away because of high housing costs. The report paints a dire picture of housing in the region with over 15 pages of comments. Residents share their stories about packing five-person families into studio apartments or staying in abusive relationships because there's nowhere else to go. KHOL's Hannah Mersbach recently sat down with Jackson Teton County Housing Director April Norton, who helped facilitate the survey, which was put out to the community last year. And they began their conversation talking about how people who live in Jackson's major apartment complexes are typically paying more than other residents. You know, in the past, we have reached out to the major apartment complexes in the Valley just to see what their rent rates are. And we've done that for about four years and at the beginning of last year, in response, I think probably to a, a, a newspaper article that was published, some of those apartment complexes decided they did not want to give us the information anymore. You know, the only other way for us to really get that is to ask renters themselves. So that's why we put this rental survey out in, I think, late August. We got over 900 responses, which was pretty fantastic. A lot of rich information in the report itself. And really, for me, highlighted some of the gaps in our understanding of the rental market, too. We don't know right now how many free market rentals there are in the Valley. I think we have some rough estimates, but it's a space where I think we could do some more research to better understand that. It's a pretty dynamic space, too, because as we all know, there may be a four-bedroom Boise Cascade that's a rental today, and next year it may be under construction, you know, scraped and under construction and turning into perhaps a second home or a very large single-family residence. Yeah, this report gave a lot of information about the town's five largest apartment complexes. Those are Aspen Meadows, Latitude 43, or Blair Apartments, Hidden Hollow, Timbers, Sagebrush. It showed that two bedrooms can be anywhere between a median of 3,000 to about 3,500. How much of an increase is this from previous years? Do you know? It's certainly an increase. It has held relatively steady the last year, it looks like. Again, I think we've got some gaps in our understanding. Um, We certainly recognize that cost of living has gone up. There's been inflation. So you would expect to see some of the rent rates to also go up just because we've seen the inflation. And I think for those private market rentals, property taxes certainly are something that we're hearing a lot. You know, the owners of these market rentals are paying higher property taxes and then they're passing on some of those costs to their tenants. 
So you found that those market rentals are actually on average cheaper than those five big apartment complexes, right? Well, I think it's really important to note that the market rentals are very elastic. Let's say there's a wide range. So if you look at the report, there's a graph in there. It's a box and whiskers graph. And you can see that the outliers are very far outside for those free market rentals that are outside of the apartment complexes. You know, you've got a really broad range for the rent rates there. That includes aging housing stock that we would we would assume is likely to be a little less expensive than newer housing stock. Um, I think that's really important. But that's a there's a wide range in there for sure. We do see some folks who anecdotally, again, we included all of the comments from the rental survey because I thought that they were really rich and just interesting. But you do see people saying things like, I've lived in my rental for 10 years or, you know, this rental was passed on to me from a friend. And so recognizing that there are certainly some free market rentals that are affordable to people who are living locally. And and we certainly applaud the owners of those um, rentals and, and the fact that they are renting at an affordable rate, recognizing that not everyone who's a landlord can afford to do that. So, But certainly it's a very broad range, I'd say, in the market rentals, for sure. Reading through those comments, there's, what, like 15 pages of comments from community members. I hear these things around town, but I think it was like particularly heart-wrenching just seeing it all written down together Mm -hmm. like that. People describing their rent going up like 1,300 in a year. This one person wrote, my rent has gone up 8% every year and my income hasn't, can't save money for my future, looking to leave after 24 years. People again and again were saying we're going to leave because of housing. Like this is not just a myth we're hearing from in town council. This is happening before our eyes. How did you feel reading all these? Oh my gosh. I went through these comments a couple of different times. Um, I I cried. I'll be honest. There's some really tough comments in there. I think, you know, We are certainly trying to get as much housing built as quickly as we can. It's a challenge. It's a big challenge for our community. And my heart goes out to so many of the people who took the time to take the survey, to share their thoughts and their experiences. You know, I read people's frustrations and there were some hopeful comments, certainly interspersed throughout. But overall, certainly reading about people and their trying experiences. You know, I talk about anecdotally You know, a lot of folks in our town are wearing this backpack of stress and it's, you know, the stress of trying to make sure you've got a stable place to live that you can afford on top of everything else that most people worry about. And you could really feel that backpack of stress going through the comments for certain. One thing I saw a lot of mention of is these extra fees that are in addition to that sticker price rent, you know, things like people paying $75 or more a month to use washers and dryers, maintain common areas, HOA fees. I know I live in one of these big apartment buildings and I experience these myself. Is this a new phenomenon? What do you think about all this? The HOA fee is definitely, for rental units, is definitely something we've seen that's that's newer, um, at least in my experience. We've seen fees, and for the workforce and affordable de-restricted units, we can track what the fees are because we see all the leases. For the free market rentals, though, we can't track the fees. The other thing that's not mentioned in the report that is something we're trying to, to wrap our brains around a little bit are many of these places, particularly the larger apartment complexes, not all of them, but some of them, charge fees just to be on their list. It's like $25 per person in your household. That's so that they will just process your application and put you on the list. So for a family of four, that's 100 bucks just to get on a list. Um, there are processing fees on top of that. 
for some of these apartment complexes. So that's something that we certainly, another gap sort of in our understanding that we want to dig into a little bit more. It is hard, though, when the apartment complexes don't give us the information directly. So we have to go find it ourselves, really. In the report, about 50 of the 900 respondents were Spanish speakers. And it showed that those populations are more likely to live in overcrowded housing than English speakers. Can you tell me more about how this population is particularly hard hit? You know, I think in the data set itself, you know, 50 out of almost 1,000 is a very, very small percentage. You know, I think when we do this again, which we will, you know, this time we released the survey in Spanish and in English, and we pushed it out sort of through social media, online, via email. Um, It was in the newspaper But I think when we do this again, we will work with our partners over at Voices GH to really make sure that we are accessing the, you know, Spanish speaking population here in our community. They're so important to our community. And I do feel like that was a bit of a miss for this survey itself. Having said that, you know, looking at their responses, we saw more overcrowding, looked like more families living together. But again, we need to spend some more time better understanding that specific group of folks in our community. Jackson Teton County Housing Director April Norton speaking with Cage Wells Hannah Mersbach about the results of a survey of over 900 community members about Jackson's housing issues that may help inform decision making on the local level. You can review the findings of the Market Rental Report at jhaffordablehousing.org. You're tuned to Jackson Impact on K12. <laughs> Snowmobiling is a big part of Wyoming's winter economy. But as the sport grows more popular, what can be done to try and decrease avalanche incidents? The Bridger Teton Avalanche Center wants to help build a better picture of what's going on with less studied snowpacks in the eastern half of the state. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman has more on how the center hopes to get more local communities involved. High up on a snowy ridge in the Tetons, Frank Karras and John Fitzgerald have carved out a flat spot in a steep slope so they can see its layers. This helps them better understand the snow's stability. They're in this specific spot because an avalanche was naturally triggered here over a week ago. ECTP 23. Um, Two mil facets. Not great. Not the worst. Karis and Fitzgerald work as forecasters with the Jackson-based Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. It's part of the Forest Service and provides daily avalanche forecasts and snow and weather data for Northwest Wyoming. But interesting and consistent to have no failure at that cross, is what we saw a week ago. It's the forecaster's job to literally get their hands in the snow to test its stability in many different locations, aspects, and elevations, and to see how it's changed over time. We've had that sandwich crust, facet crust, down towards the bottom of the pack, but not at the ground. Crust is not a good word. That usually means the snow is less stable. With this new information, the forecasters now have one more data point for when they provide their professional opinion on the trend of snow stability in this area. But Kara says they only have so many forecasters. There's basically six forecasters trying to cover 7,000 square miles of forecast area. And each of our mountain ranges have some unique weather and avalanche conditions. 
That 7,000 square miles covers the south of Yellowstone National Park all the way down to Cokeville and Ham's Fork and from the eastern edge of Idaho to Dubois. And there's no other professional avalanche forecasting organization for any other part of the state. Dwayne Meadows is the executive director of the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center Foundation, which raises money for the center. There are also a lot of blank spaces on the map that are where people are riding and snowmobiling and without an avalanche forecast to say, hey, today the avalanche danger is high or low or considerable or extreme. Eastern Wyoming is one of those blank spaces. But this year, the center created a new avalanche information exchange page for the area on their website. The page is a place for the public to share and see other community observations for the Bighorn, Sierra Madre, and Snowy Mountains. Kara says people can post things like a photo of a recent avalanche or a crusty layer in the snow, and can view webcams and weather station data. Before they go out, they can make decisions on what the snowpack may be like. It'll help guide their terrain choices, hopefully. A lot of the people getting out in those mountain ranges and others throughout Wyoming are snowmobilers, which Meadows says is... Arguably the biggest part of Wyoming's winter tourism economy. Bigger than skiing. And it provides a lot for a lot of tiny little towns all over the state. According to a recent report on snowmobile recreation, the number of people visiting Wyoming to ride has increased by almost 40% in a nine-year time period. Meadows says snowmobiler deaths and avalanches have increased over the years, while skiing deaths have plateaued despite increased use. The snowmobiles are a lot easier to ride, they're lighter and they're faster, and people are getting themselves in trouble. Of the four people who've died in avalanches in the snowy mountains west of Laramie since the 80s, three were snowmobilers. Heather Tupper is a volunteer with the Snowy Range Snowmobile Club. She says the club has a big focus on education, which is especially important given the range is the first one you run into coming west on I-80. Tupper says getting the new Avalanche Information Exchange page on people's radar and creating buy-in will be helpful. We as a user group can kind of help support this and continue to build legitimacy behind the need for this information and a place to find it. Will Mook is the co-founder of Mountain Riding Lab, which teaches motorized avalanche education in Wyoming and Idaho. He says education in the field is just now catching up to snowmobiling technology. So, an increase in classes and more on-the-ground data points will ideally keep more people safe in the backcountry. Hopefully, that's going to turn the bar graphs around, and we're not going to be the, the user group that has the most fatalities you know, across the West every year. Forecaster Frank Karras says the Avalanche Center will also be teaching classes out in the eastern half of the state this winter. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah Haberman. There's snow in Wyoming once again It's bitter and it's haunting me just like an old friend Every year it happens and I just have to pretend that I like the snow in Wyoming again. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from K12, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger Teton National Forest, not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. 
More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. Maybe I'm resistant to change. You're listening to Jackson Hole singer-songwriter Missy Joe in the KHOL studios. You may also know her as Teton Music School teacher Melissa Elliott, who has been working this winter to put together an all-ages Taylor Swift tribute concert at the center. But when she stopped by Cagewell recently to talk about it, she also sang one of her own songs, titled Snow in Wyoming. Appropriate given the snowfall we finally got at the start of 2024. Head over to 891 to hear more live music and interviews with local musicians and bands in our studio. Expecting something different, maybe I'm resistant to change. There's snow in Wyoming once again. I'll bundle up and buckle down to bear the storms ahead. Every year it happens and here I am again. I'll live with the snow in Wyoming. The snow in Wyoming. There's snow in Wyoming once again. Thanks for tuning in to KHOL. I'm Tyler Pratt. There is finally a much cheaper way for Jacksonites and visitors to get to and from the airport, a shuttle, but it's just for this winter and it won't return if there's not a boost in ridership. Kate Wells Hanemersbach grabbed her microphone and took a round trip on the shuttle to see how some in the community are feeling about the new airport commute. The sleek white bus reaches to a halt in front of the home ranch lot in downtown Jackson near the Welcome Center. It's fancier than your typical bus with tinted black windows and a luggage bay underneath. Hi, to the airport? Yes, ma'am. Shortly after noon, local resident Trevor Brown boards the heated shuttle wearing a green puffy jacket and AirPods in his ears. I mean, everything else in this town is so expensive. You know, keep the bus. We need public transit to and from the airport. Unlike the four other passengers aboard, he doesn't have a suitcase or duffel, and he's not flying out. Like many Jacksonites, Brown wears a lot of hats. Bartend, freelance software developer, ski patrol, and actually Turo Rental, which is why I'm going up to the airport right now. Turo is a car sharing company. Brown says as a side hustle, he drops his truck off at the airport for visitors to borrow during their stay. But he has to find a way to get there and back. Until the airport shuttle came to town in mid-December, he was bumming the 20-minute ride off his girlfriend or spending money on rideshare apps. It's like 30 to $40 depending on traffic. And so, you know, this kind of cuts the cost in half of getting up there. The shuttle costs $10 each way for adults, picking up passengers at parking lots around downtown Jackson from 5 in the morning till 9 at night and then drops off riders like Brown near the airport's front doors. Arrival at airport. But come mid-April, the shuttle is slated to go away, and it may not come back. The pilot program is all about figuring out if there's actually a need for an airport shuttle in town. If people don't ride, it would be an indication that perhaps the demand really doesn't exist, at least not to the degree that people have articulated. Sitting in his office, Local Start Transit Director Bruce Abel says community members have been calling for a shuttle for years, ever since the last bus shut down over three years ago, and have been coming up with creative solutions to get to the airport. 
there is the what I've heard referred to as the, the Jackson Hole Shuffle. Locals often have to score a ride from a family member or friend, have someone come and pick up their car at the airport, risk Uber or Lyft surcharges, or pay roughly 50 bucks for a taxi. That's until the Federal Aviation Administration recently stepped in and allowed the Jackson Hole Airport to fund a bus temporarily. That is not something that the FAA does routinely. It is not something we would anticipate would happen on an ongoing basis. Typically, the FAA doesn't let airports fund off-site transportation, but it is helping fund this pilot program for now. For shuttle service to continue, locals and visitors need to prove that they'll use it. Abel says so far about 70 people use the bus every day, and that topped 100 in late December. But an average of 120 riders a day are needed for the program to be considered a success. And if they don't meet that threshold? I think then that the community will need to reevaluate whether or not there is really a demand for public transit service between town and the airport. Where future funding will come from is not clear. And some in the community say they aren't happy with the new shuttle. Like Troy Mitchell, a taxi driver, who says cabs are getting pinched out. You have five different companies competing for one ride, and the people, of course, when you tell them $10 to town, they're going to take that, where we're like 45 to town. Sitting in his black SUV in the taxi line at the airport, Mitchell says the weather this winter also hasn't been helping, with fewer visitors coming to ski. The competition's fierce, but the snow's coming, and I think everything's going to be fine. As Mitchell inches forward in the taxi line... People line up across the street to board the public shuttle to get back to town, with the driver of loading suitcases in the bottom of the bus. Hi. Where are you headed to? Where do you want to take me? Uh, where are we going? Downtown, right? Downtown Miller Park? Yeah. Yes. Okay. A group of 15 young people on a work trip are visiting from Houston, planning to ride snowmobiles. We're all together. Oh, you're all together. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Juan Hernandez says they're excited to find the cheap option to get to town. They're staying in Teton Village, but the bus will get them halfway there. We were just walking around and we saw the sign for the shuttle. We uh, scanned it and we realized, oh man, that's in 10 minutes. Let's go. Let's find the pickup. As the passengers pile into the bus, paying by app or cash, the driver, Darcy Thompson, says she's looking forward to the ride back to town. You have really good views. Get paid to see the Tetons every day. And with that, the bus door is shut, and the passengers are on their way to Jackson, gazing out the windows at the striking mountains cutting across the skyline. Hannah Mersbach, KHL News. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. Before we go today, after nine years on the KHOL Airwaves, dedicated blues DJ Big E, known by most as Emerson, retired at the end of 2023. His Wednesday evening blues show has been a station staple since 2014. KHOL Executive Director Emily Cohen spoke with Emerson about the inspiration for his show and what kept him motivated to drive over the pass every week to share his music with listeners. Congratulations on finishing this chapter with KHOL. Yeah, it was a wonderful, long-time, long-term, wonderful ride with KHOL. Why the blues? Why did you want to have a blues show? It's always been about the blues for me. Uh, In the beginning, I just fell in love with the blues when uh, my brother came home from college and lit up our family room with all this blues music. That was 
I'd really never heard that kind of music before. I was a Beach Boys uh, kind of guy. My first album uh, from Tower Records was uh, Surfer Girl by the Beach Boys. So when I heard this blues music, it was so out of the ordinary and so great. I just got hooked really quickly. How old were you then? Two years younger than my brother, so I was about 16. So you've been into the blues for over 50 years. Yeah, and I I uh, ran into a guy a number of years ago who came out to visit a friend of his here in Driggs, and he became my kind of blues mentor. And he was born and raised in Chicago, which is the home of the blues, and turned me on to thousands of songs that he had collected over the years. You know, that was a springboard to do a blues show. What motivated you for nine years to drive over the pass from Driggs, Idaho to Jackson, Wyoming to host your radio show here on KHOL? When I make a commitment, I make a commitment and I just fulfill that. So, And I enjoyed it so much, even though I had to go over that awful pass. I looked forward to doing that and it got me several days before my show to put a whole playlist together. And uh, even doing that at home was just a wonderful thing to do. I just look forward to doing it on a weekly basis. I've been putting playlists together since 1975. And I've got hundreds of copied playlists from starting in 1975 when I went to school in San Diego. The old school mixtape. Oh, oh, yeah. And they were copied to cassette to begin with in our dorm rooms. That just was the beginning of a musical life for me. Well, no, the, I, I, I wrote some of this down. My musical life began in third grade when I took one of my dad's record albums and I put it in our bedroom. With my, my brother and I shared a bedroom and... Uh, the first song that I got connected to, and you won't believe it, is The Yellow Rose of Texas. And I put that on school day mornings and put that on a little Victrola that I, my brother and I had in our room. And I listened to it while I walked around and made my bed. My mom said, you have to make your bed before you go to school every morning. So I played that song for a long, long time, every morning. As I made my bed before I went to elementary school. Well, do you have a new favorite song? What is something these days that's ringing in your ear? With the radio station, we get so many just released kind of new things. Probably one of the most best albums that I've been listening to for quite some time that came through KHOL is uh, a CD called Mitch Woods, Friends Along the Way. He's got a collection of blues artists on there that are, is just stunning. You built a community around this show. You sent out weekly emails that kept your fans engaged, and you connected with friends from other times in your life. Can you talk a little bit about this? Most of it was people from my past, not particularly in Jackson or Driggs, but there's a lot of people on that list of that I sent the playlist out to from uh, Durango 
Colorado to Joshua Tree, all these different places where folks that I knew or went to school with, particularly in college, uh, that are still around. So I'd send that out the day before my show, and folks would listen to me. I solicited people to listen to the blues music. You created a following for your show, and it sounds like you also created new blues fans out there. Any final thoughts that you want to share with listeners about the end of this chapter? It's time to end, which is kind of sad. Uh, But I look back and it was just a a really great experiment. I'm not experiment, experiment, but experience. And it's time to, I wouldn't say do something else, because I've already put together my first playlist uh, that isn't going to go on radio, and it's my uh, first playlist not doing blues, I'm sure I'm just going to continue putting these playlists together, sending them out to folks. I'm going to the post office this afternoon in Driggs, and I put a bunch of new stuff on um, CDs, and I'm sending them out to five of my friends. Uh, for them to listen to. And so I think that's how it'll just keep going. I gotta have to do something with all of this. And for both me and my wife, it's music has always been that number one kind of focus. And so uh, we'll just keep doing it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your music with KHOL and our listeners for so many years. Well, you're very welcome. And I'm going to come over and connect with you and Jack and we'll go to lunch. KHOL Blues DJ Big E, known by most as Emerson, who retired at the end of 2023. Speaking with KHOL's Emily Cohen. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Taylor Pratt and this is KHOL Jackson 